0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. The topic today is Christ, our mighty intercessor. What a topic. Uh, You know, I met some Catholic friends. I have some Catholic friends for many years. And they're telling me how wonderful, how awesome it is to have Mary, the Virgin Mary, as our intercessor. That Jesus doesn't love us enough, Jesus is not compassionate, he needs his mother to help us out. Now I'm not against mothers, but Jesus needs no help. He's the only mediator between heaven and Earth, and he is more loving, compassionate than any human being, even his own mother, because he is perfect. And so as I speak about Jesus, the mighty intercessor and the only intercessor, we're coming close to the very special word that defines who he is. By the way. He is different than anyone else. Some people think, some well-meaning Adventists think, that uh, uh, he is the same as us. Well, that would be bad news, because if he's the same as us, he cannot save us, because we cannot save ourselves. He is both similar than us. I mean, similar to us and different than us. And the tension between these two. Characteristics spells our salvation. He is different than us, so he can save us. He is similar to us, so he can sympathize with us. He is a savior and a sympathizer. When we talk about Jesus being the only intercessor between heaven and earth, I think of a very special word that describes him. And you know, many people miss that but um, i like to bring it out today john three sixteen, and if i asked you to recite that you would use the word begotten except elder i told him flagstaff ring staff mm-hmm. our, ex- our executive secretary he, he said why would you call me flagstaff i said in the last few days and become few years, I should say, I'm becoming more and more patriotic. Uh, by the way, you smiled at that patriotic. I thought you might frown at me. It's nice to be patriotic, isn't it? Well, I'm American citizen, but I was naturalized. I was grafted in. Most of you were born here, so I appreciate very much being an American citizen. Okay. And uh, there's something good about this country. Still, with all our problems, it's the best country in the world. I don't see many people trying to leave, but I see many people trying to get in. So there must be something good about it. So, um, Brother Ringstaff, did you study, you know, I was his professor, by the way. Isn't that nice, in my retirement, I can draw up names. I was his, was that true about, do you admit that? Do you admit? What do you mean what is that? Are you getting old enough to be hard of hearing? What's the matter? Do you remember me being your professor? See, he worked, but you don't say it very loud. Let me ask you again. Do you admit I was your professor, sir? Absolutely, did you hear him? I heard him, and let me translate to you, okay? Audibly he said absolutely professor. Thank you so much. I needed that encouragement now. You studied Greek at at sudden didn't you do you still remember? I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot and you sat right in the front So you gave me an excuse to to discuss things with you if you sat somewhere else I would have asked you any questions Thank you for being vulnerable to be here Anyway, not simple, really simple question because John 3.16, everybody use the adjective for Jesus, begotten, okay? That's standard. And uh, uh, you know, the New Testament was written in what language? It was written in American? What did you say? It was written in the King James Version? What was it written in? Greek, okay. Mm Why, why would John and the apostles write in Greek? What's the reason for that? How come it was available for them to use? And we as Americans speak mostly one language, English. Why did they speak Hebrew, the maternal language, and Greek? Why Greek? Because that was the universal language left from the Grecian empire. Even though Rome was in control, Latin wasn't popular. So, Jesus and the apostles were trilingual. That's a good question for a quiz, isn't it? So I already told you both of them. Sitting in the front, excuse me, usually A students sit there. So what was one language? Greek, second Hebrew, and the third? How come the answers come from there? Why not all these A students know the answer? Who are you, sir? Who said Aramaic? Be brave, stand up, and declare yourself. Show your colors. And why, why Aramaic? People say they don't know the reason. Why? I, as a professor, I like to know the reason. Why Aramaic? Why the Jewish people spoke Aramaic G- during Jesus time? Uh, somebody, I, uh, can you translate for me? Who the what? Babylon. Oh, Babylon. Why, why bring Babylon into this sacred assembly? Babylon because the Jews were exiles for 70 years, and the Nebuchadnezzar and other kings, and therefore uh, if you stay in a country 70 years, you learn the language and your kids learn the language and the grandkids so they went back home, speak Aramaic, and Jesus spoke Aramaic especially Well, it was a very um, trying moment it's interesting that The ones who were not born in this country and know English well, in times of crisis, they resort to praying in their maternal language. It's interesting, isn't it? Because history with something, loving, family, background. You know, I I pray in Arabic, when I'm really stressed out, when I'm having a struggle. And that's what Jesus did. Eli, Eli, lama shabaktani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he truly felt forsaken by God. And that's why when we are tempted to complain, God, why have you forsaken me? That's not a question for us to ask. Because Christ was truly forsaken that you and I may never be forsaken. This afternoon at 2.15, I'll be having a seminar a new subject: the Middle East, Messiah. How to understand the rich, deep significance of his life and ministry by simply understanding his culture. We all know wonderful things about Jesus, but this seminar this afternoon will show us the depth and enrichment of his experience and culture. I'll give you an example to just what you appetite. When we read the story of Jesus washing the feet of Judas, the immediate impression is that he was loving, forgiving, humble, that's all true. But there is something more. How do I know that? Because I grew up in that culture. I grew up doing these things. And that is in the culture of Jesus, in my culture, the head represents the most noble, sacred part of the body, and the feet. In America, we like our feet. They are clean, manicured, we put nice shoes on, but in that part of the world, no, feet are dusty. They are surrounded with dirt and filth. Therefore, the head represents the most noble part of the body, the feet represent the most base part of the body, the most terrible part of the body. So. When Jesus And by the way They didn't have tables And chairs like we do They just used the floor When Jesus Went forward to wash Judas' feet His head Was right there at his feet Wow The, The noble Head of Jesus The king of the universe Was touching The traitor Judas Touching his feet The worst about him And by the way, in the culture of Jesus, treason, betrayal is one of the worst sins. That's why Peter, even though Jesus forgave him, he spent many years of his ministry not able to forgive himself because he felt so ashamed. I denied Jesus, my best friend. How could I ever forgive myself that Jesus forgives any sin? But finally, Peter was looking forward to honor his savior. By keeping his promise in that culture, when you promise you find something, you fulfill it. If you don't, you feel like a heel. Oh, dear Lord, I promised to go on top with you on the cross. I didn't. I feel like a heel. Oh, someday help me to show you how much I love you, how much I'm loyal, give me another chance. And when they came to take him, bound him To crucify him, he said Crucify me upside down And when he breathed his last Finally, even though Christ forgave him And he would have been saved But finally, Peter forgave himself And died with a smile Finally, I kept my promise I'm going to talk about this culture And so, so the message of washing Judas' feet is that Jesus was telling disciples, was telling Judas, was telling all of us, I am eager to do my best to help you at your worst. And Judas felt that love through and through. And so I want to ask you the question, what's the worst thing about you? What's something nobody knows except God? What's something you're hiding, ashamed of, making you question your assurance of salvation. And Jesus is telling you right now, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the most powerful, the most gracious, the most loving Savior, I'm eager to use my utmost best to reach you at your worst. Isn't that encouraging? We're talking about Jesus uniquely is our mighty intercessor, uniquely many other things. And going back John 3, 16, my friends John wrote in Greek, the Holy Spirit inspired him to take his quilt and form the Greek letters. So people tell me, no, no, I'd rather read the King James version than the New Testament Greek, excuse me? I mean, it was the original. Whoever translated the King James Version had to look at the Greek and know it. You know what the word is for begotten? There is no word begotten in John 15. I mean, I'm not trying to change, you know, please keep reading on the Bible, whatever translation, it's good. I'm just building a case for the 11 o'clock meetings this week on this one adjective describing Jesus. And that's the adjective that John shows under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Could somebody guess? I'm looking away from the first row. For God so loved the world that he gave his... Look at that, they only. Wow, you people are smart. How come they spoke up and you were quiet, sir? and you studied Greek. Well, what's the Greek word? Mano, Ganias, not begotten. God so loved the world that he gave his Mano, son. That's the word. And by the way, Mano means one, Ganias means kind. So literally one of a kind or unique. Oh, that changes everything. That gives us all kinds of possibilities. It gives us hope beyond anything. Why? Because Jesus was unique and that's why he's able to save us, intercede for us, teach us all of that. For example, there's a big difference between begotten and unique. Begotten, there's nothing unique about it. Elder Ringstaff was begotten. Do you have kids? How many? Three. Man, if you're from my part of the world, you would have six, nine, or 12. But three is the American way. You know something? They're begotten. If time lasts and they get married, they'll be get other children. Be, being begotten was there from the time of Adam and Eve. Billions of times people have been begotten. Nothing unique about it. It's unique, it's different. For example, let me ask you the question, especially during the COVID season, what are the two most impossible problems to solve? You thought about it during COVID season, still thinking about it. Somebody tells me selfishness, no, something behind selfishness. Oh, cancer, no, something is behind cancer. COVID, no, something, be, well, COVID is the worst, thing. no, no, it's not. COVID is not the worst thing. Praise the Lord, COVID is not the worst thing. What's the worst problem to solve and nobody can solve it except the unique Jesus? Sin. You know something? People are so caught up in the coronavirus, they forget about the sin virus. And the sin virus is more deadly. If somebody dies in Jesus from COVID, there is the hope of the resurrection And God is using COVID as a wake-up call to say, have you dealt with the problem of sin? And the second problem is death. The older we get, the more we think about death. You retire, and you know, I mean, you accomplish many of your goals, you raise your kids, have grandkids. What after? What after? is the abyss without hope in Jesus. That's what keeps us going. We are looking forward to be in heaven with Jesus. Why? Because he defeated the problem of sin and death. Now isn't that good news? Jesus found the answer to our spiritual deadly cancer. And if somebody found the cure, to literal cancer, he'd be worshiped today in the world. But Jesus liberates us from the cancer of sin. How do he do it? He fought sin with sin and he won for us. Because Paul says, he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteous of God in him. So what's the answer to the, uh, uh, to the problem of sin? The virus of sin, Christ's robe of righteousness. And he says, If you open your heart to me, I already have the solution. If you sit at my feet and learn to be like me, if you walk with me, if you submit yourself to me, hand me over your sin. In the place of your sin, I give you my robe of righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful divine exchange? I don't want to use bargain to cheapen it, but it's a wonderful bargain. And you worried about your death. You're worried about getting old. You're worried about being sick, being feeble. Hey, don't worry. Come to me. Come to who? Source of life, Jesus. Come to me. Throw at me your death. In the place of your death, I give you eternal life. You can't beat that, can you beat that? And nobody can offer that except the monogamous Jesus. Nobody. Muhammad, Mahavira, Confucius, Buddha, Zoroaster, nobody. Only Jesus is uniquely qualified. Please take advantage of the uniqueness of Jesus. And now he comes as unique intercessor. And he's unique in many ways. Uh, Somebody sent me this text. I'd like to read to you. It's interesting. It's about prayer. It's kind of funny a little bit, but makes a point. Good morning, Lord. I'm just getting out of bed to face a new day, like all of us do. So far, I've been good. I've not been grouchy, not mean to anybody, not gossiped yet, but in few minutes I'll be getting out of bed, then I will need a lot of help, a lot of prayer in real life. We all need a lot of help. We all need a lot of prayer because our help is not sufficient. Our prayers are not strong enough. In this word comes Jesus, our mighty intercessor. But being weak is okay, being broken is okay because that's life. That's an integral part of life. You know, Buddha said, Brokenness, pain, it's an integral part of life. And he was right. He called his insights the, uh, the, the great three noble truths. It was one of them. Okay, thank you. Sir, Mr. Buddha, do you have an answer to that problem? No. He didn't. His ultimate answer was fading away into the abyss. You know, just like our Sabbath school lessons this this quarter, there is brokenness. There is evil in this world. But Satan doesn't know how to deal with people like us who believe in Jesus. And that's what what it says, what was meant for evil. Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil. You sent me as a slave. You planned to kill me. You meant it for evil for sure, but God meant it for good. Isn't that a wonderful statement? I I really live by that statement, you know why? Because Satan cannot fight that. He sends evil, it turns out for the good. I think sometimes he regrets sending evil, I think. Because, especially for those who uh, are strengthened by trusting God, over that evil. Well, being broken and restored by Jesus helps us to be humble, pliable, teachable, grateful. And you know something, at my age, when I talk to people, even pastors, I can tell the person who was broken and restored. I can tell. You know, I mean, I meet sometimes spiritual leaders who are like, you know, I'm on top of the world. Nothing affects me. Everything is going great for me. Like this, this hearty spirit, like proud spirit. They never were broken on the rock, Jesus, and humbled. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 20, Verse 18, also Matthew, twenty one forty two. what does he say? He gives a choice for the religious leaders of his day. You got the rock, that's Jesus, it's Petra, not Petros. Jesus built his church on Petra, the solid rock Jesus. And he said, I'll give you a choice we all have to make a choice about the rock. We have to. We we can change our minds about our profession. We can buy another house. We can study a different major. Not with Jesus the rock. You got to decide about him before it's too late. And he gave the Jewish leaders choice, Jewish leaders. He said uh, either I, the rock, fall on you or you will fall on me. And that's interesting. It's the same rock. And he says, either it saves you or it crushes you. And I don't want to scare you that there will be a crushing someday. When Jesus comes, those who have not fallen on the rock in contrition, repentance, what choice will, will there be left except for the rock finally to fall on them? Somebody heard me talk about that years ago and he said, You know, I don't like that. What don't you like? I don't like the rock falling on me. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel comfortable. Well, okay, why not fall on the rock right now yourself? I don't want to. I don't. F- I don't feel like falling on the rock. Why? Because I'll be bruised. I said to him, I'd rather have you be bruised any time than be crushed. But well, you sound serious, Dr. Saman. You really mean this? I mean, this is a matter of life and death. I mean, we need to help as many people to fall on the rock right now so they won't face the rock falling on them and say, hide us from the rock. There is no reason for us to hide from the rock. The rock is here for our salvation. Now is the time to fall on the rock and be bruised with contrition and repentance so Jesus can restore you. So not all brokenness is bad. Sometimes it's the greatest blessing. Look at Jacob, I mean, Jacob was saved. He was going through Jacob's time of trouble, his time of trouble. And we'll talk later on about time of trouble, little time of trouble, Jacob's time of trouble, the great time of trouble. And he says, he was holding onto Jesus for dear life. I mean, you are my life, you everything. Please don't leave me. I, I don't know how I deserve to stay in your presence, but please. I hang on to you. Don't leave me until you bless me. Please give me a blessing. And be careful what to pray for, okay? The blessing for Jacob was for the angel of the Lord Jesus to touch his hip and get it out of place. So he was limping. It was a blessing. And because of that experience of brokenness, Jacob's life was transformed from a victor in Christ and not a victim of circumstances. Many of us are living our lives as victims. It's high time we abandon being victims because we are anchored in Jesus and he's a victor. We don't take pride in our victory. Are Our real victory is anchored in Jesus' victory. I don't care how victorious I am. Without Jesus joining me with his victory, my victory is not good enough. It's not. You know, there there are some Adventist scholars in some parts of this country who think that that Jesus did not need to die. He, He just came to show a good example of loving us. Uh, how do you explain the millions of innocent animals sacrificed? That must be a very rude reminder to the children of Israel, sin costs. And someday it will cost his blood. And by the way, if Jesus did not die, shed his blood, who would, be, who would have given us eternal life? No, nobody got eternal life, by the way. Have you gotten eternal life? <laughs> I mean, even a holy angel doesn't have eternal life. He just borrows from Jesus. Jesus uniquely had to die so he can give us life because we didn't have life. So, you know, my advice to myself and all of us, stick to the Bible. Read it. Read the spirit of prophecy because we're living in the last days and many people are changing. I meet former Seventh-day Adventists, even some pastors who say, you know, uh, they retired now. So they're more free to talk. Have you ever heard that? That some people when they retire from denomination employment, they're more free to talk. I mean, excuse me? I believe this message, precious message, from the time I was a child, my parents were imprisoned for it. I've been retired for three and a half years. I have the good news to share with you. By the grace of God, I have not changed. I have become more anchored. I'll die on this hill. I'll die a believer for Jesus and his precious message. Now is the time to have faith, not to veer away from faith. So I'm just announcing to you as your speaker this week, I'm still the same. Isn't that nice? You have friends who don't change. This pastor came to me, we talked, as he said, do you still believe in the Sabbath? I thought he was joking. I said, excuse me, sir, I've known you for many years. Are you pulling my leg? He said, no, no, I'm serious. No, the Sabbath commandment is obsolete. We are 7 day Adventists. So then you don't uh, expect to face Sunday law? Oh, no, there is no Sunday law. Why would there be Sunday law? He said, because I have a certain way of interpreting Scripture in theology called hermeneutics. I have a different way of doing hermeneutics. What, what is your hermeneutics? I call it principle hermeneutics. Principle Bible, way of interpreting the Bible. You know, principle sounds good, doesn't it? We have a principle, we're principle people. You have a principle at this academy, it's all good. But what's the negative part about that? is the principle of the fourth commandment, is what? To keep one day, to rest on one day. That's the principle, rest on one day. It doesn't matter what day, as long as you rest one day a week, that's the principle. How subtle can Satan be? I told him, but the word of God still says. God rested on that, what day? Did he, did he rest on Tuesday? No. Can you change the date of your birthday? He rested on it. You know this information, but I had to tell him that to remind him of the Bible. Please read your Bible. He rested, he blessed it, and he sanctified it. And he said, you rest on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath. I mean, how, how clear can you be? But Ellen White said, Satan specializes in taking the plainest the most plain statement of Jehovah and gets it very complicated. Isn't that amazing? It's a sign of a bad teacher. You take something very clear, you present it in a complicated way. I remember that. He said, Well, you know, that's um, I mean you have to understand in context. I mean, that was a different culture. Excuse me, God and his principles are eternal. Have you heard the Bible when it says God doesn't change? Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Come on, something has to stay the same. People can change, but God doesn't change. At least God does not change in his principles, in his commandments. So anyway, I'd like to share a text with you in this context and that's found in Romans 8, 26. Thank you for the water. My mouth gets dry. By the way, I haven't drink, I haven't drunk Michigan water for some years. It's good water. As some people today as we are together are hungry, don't have enough water. Think of the people of Ukraine. And thank God for the blessings we don't deserve. And so somebody opened up a text. I repeat. <clears throat> well, let me ask anybody found this text, Romans 8 26? Can you please read it? And I expect the A students here, one of you to volunteer, you know, read it with a loud voice and with, with conviction. Please. And then at the end of the week when i give my final exam uh, i'll give you 10 bonus points <laughs> you want to read it stand up please then look at the audience and read it likewise the spirit also helps in our weakness for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered thank you Wow, in this context, we're told that we're weak in something, we're weak in many things. In this particular situation, we are weak in our prayer life. And that's why the little humor story at the beginning. When I got out of bed, I need a lot of prayer and help. We are weak in our prayer life. Certainly, our best prayers are not as good as the prayers of Jesus. Our best, righteousness is not as good as the righteousness of Jesus. He's better in every way. And, and if we are really fortunate, we stick to Jesus and we share in everything he offers us. Otherwise, we're destitute, no matter how good we think we are. So anyway, now, you know, it says, that even the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. That's quite a word, isn't it? Groaning. Do you ever groan about anything? How many here groan about anything? I guess I'm raising my hand, I just, I just wanted to see how many. I include myself, did you raise your hand? Even executive secretaries of the conference groan? Man, life is so happy and easy for you and you're so young and healthy and you look handsome, why in the world you would groan? Groaning is a part of this life. It's a very powerful verb. I was driving to Nashville from Chattanooga, and in front of me was a car. It had an accident. I came out of my car to see if I could help him. And the steering wheel crushed his ribs, and blood was coming out of his mouth. And he certainly was groaning. I couldn't sleep that night. What happened to this man? Groaning? And now this groaning of a man. Imagine the groanings of God. The whole cosmos reverberates with the groanings of God. Why? For you and me. Why? Because our prayers are weak and he wants to present them in the most powerful way. Now you say, well, Jesus grows, the Holy Spirit grows, so when it comes to prayer, what's the role of the triune God? Well, I put some notes down here for my research. By the way, all these notes are uh, in, in my book, Christ's Way to Pray, how Jesus prays for us and with us. And this is what it says there. They all play a part in our prayer life, specialized part. People say, should I pray to the Father in the name of Jesus? What about the Holy Spirit? What about angels, yeah? Excuse me? They all work together. They cooperate together because in this world, sometimes we have conflict, we don't get along. We think, we think Father, Son, Holy Spirit, maybe don't get along. No, they get along perfectly. They all work to help us in our prayers, to help us in everything. So I put down the Father. And while I'm at on the subject, I believe with all my heart, in three persons of the Godhead, holy, equal, powerful, loving. Three in one, one in three. And today's the discussion about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just a thought, an idea, a notion. Excuse me? If you do research in the Bible, He is clearly a person. There is no doubt about it. I mean, I don't have a presentation now. I wish I could. Maybe in the seminars this afternoon, and this week I will. But, But there are many, many clear verses that he is a person. You cannot say this about an idea. You cannot say this about a thought or a notion. You cannot. Anyway, that's another subject. So the Father, his role in our prayer life is that he is the ultimate giver. He is the giver. All good blessings from him come from him. The Son specializes in being the intercessor. Why? Because he died for us. He knows how to intercede. He understands us, understands his Father. Uh, The Holy Spirit is what? You know, the, the Bible describes him as the one who gives us conviction. That's a powerful thing. When you're convicted of sin and righteousness, very powerful. I say he is the what word did I use here? He is, I chose the well, you could choose other the activator. He activates God's will in our lives. He convicts us of God's will. He convicts us to follow Jesus. And finally, I included the angels. Is that okay? Do you think the angels have a part in our prayer life? Yes. The angels are the soldiers, the foot soldiers. And I called them the implementers. To implement God's will. The other ones who come around, see, I'm here, commissioned. To implement what God has for you. Isn't that an awesome blessing? All of heaven is interested in helping us. There's a great help on the way. If you ever become discouraged, say, help, nobody helps. No, no. All of heaven is committed to help you and me. How can we lose? How could Judas have lost Knowing that the Savior of the world was right there next to his feet, saying, My head is touching your feet, and I'm showing you I do my best to help you at your worst. I can pull you from the guttermost to the uttermost. That's why Hebrews 7:25 says, For able to save them to the uttermost. What does the word uttermost mean? Oh, by the way, you the A student here. What does the word uttermost mean? Everything. What can you say? Everything. Save to the uttermost, perfectly, completely, and forever. That's the kind of assurance of salvation we have in Jesus. Aha. What does the second part of the verse say? Therefore, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. Nobody else is able to save. That's his monogeneous unique ability to save how much to the uttermost. What's the condition? All God's promises are conditional. Some people run with that and say, by the way, Jesus, save me to the uttermost. Excuse me, sir, before you get too excited. Are you enjoying walking with Jesus? No, no, it's boring to walk with Jesus. Do you enjoy reading your Bible? No, I don't like to read. I just use my cell phone to text. I'm not used to reading my Bible anymore. Oh, buddy, do you witness? No, witnessing is boring. Why would you want to push yourself on people? Let people be free. Oh, the world is going to hell. If you really know Jesus and saved by Jesus, you would be eager to tell people about salvation. So what's the second part? I won't ask you that question. That's the I was going to say Flagstaff. It's a nice thing. By the way, what's the second part of the verse? Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. You get to make a decision to come to Christ. I don't want to come to Christ, but I want to be saved. No, sir. No, Jesus wants to make sure before he comes, you're safe to save. He doesn't want to get to heaven. Potential Lucifers, we already had one. And he was more than enough. You'd be crazy to want to have more Lucifers. Oh, because God loves me, so he has to take me. He has to take He's obligated to take me to heaven. He loves to take me to heaven, but you have to be prepared. He doesn't push it on you. So what's second part? say For, for those who come to him, and then there is the, he we talk about Greek again, there is the word of causation. For or because, meaning what's coming next is the basis why Christ saves to the uttermost. Because what? Because he, Jesus, ever, excuse me, I mean, don't wait for your professor to lecture. I'm not anymore your professors. I'm not lecturing. I want some input. Could you tell me the rest of this verse? Because he is, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Oh my, that's so crucial about Jesus being our unique intercessor. Ha, so salvation to the uttermost is anchored in his intercession for us in the heavenly sanctuary. That's why 70 The focus on the sanctuary. Other Christians do not focus on the sanctuary. You know what do they focus on? Group with her, the cross. Oh, by the way, I visited Israel. He is not hanging on the cross, fortunately. Where is he? He's is in the heavenly sanctuary. The location is important, by the way. You know, real estate agents, what they tell you, three times, location. Where is his location? The heavenly sanctuary. He's interceding for us. In this connection, I'd like to mention to you three things, vital things about the unique Jesus. Three things having to do with his uh, ministry. Associate with the word fragrance. Do you like the word fragrance? You know, it's interesting. Christ's ministry associated with sweet fragrance. And if we are close to Christ, his fragrance rubs off on us. So people who come in contact with us, we smell sweet for Jesus. We don't smell the bad odors of self. But without being fragranced by Christ, we smell bad. I don't want to smell bad, do you? If you want to smell bad, raise your hand. Or forever hold your peace we got to smell sweet for Jesus because this world doesn't smell good. And the first one, the first aspect of his ministry, I call it the fragrance of his sacrifice. What do you mean? Oh, Christ sacrificed the Lamb of God was saturated with fragrance? What's the text for that? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, the apostle Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus, (laughs) who loved us so much, so he walked all the way to the cross, by the way, genuinely loving someone, is not a matter of talking only? It's a matter of walking. We mostly walk, love. We don't just talk, love. And offered himself to God as a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling aroma, like in the Old Testament type. A lamp to be sacrificed was saturated with sweet fragrance. That's why we understand more fully why Mary's work was very significant. Jesus said she came ahead of time to anoint my body for burial. Christ's sacrifice was fragrant, and the fragrance of Christ's sacrifice. that was launched from the cross of Calvary. didn't stay there. It wafted all the way to the heavenly sanctuary in the form of his intercessions. It was launched at Calvary. It wafted to the heavenly sanctuary in the form of prayer. What's the text for that? Revelation, A3 and 4. Wonderful passage. (laughs) Where, where, Jesus is represented by the sweet fragrance. By the sweet smoke of fragrance because God, Jesus gives himself away when he intercedes for us. And not only that, but that passage says he does it with us. That this sweet fragrance ascends to heaven joined with us. In other words, Whenever you feel your prayers are smelly, odorous, you're embarrassed of them, don't worry. Submit them to the embrace of the praying Jesus. And what does he do? He saturates your smelly prayers with his fragrant prayers. Isn't that a blessing? Gives us hope, it gives our prayer life buoyancy, our faith confidence, and that fragrance in the heavenly sanctuary (laughs) doesn't <laughs> stay there. Excuse me, it descends down to our street in the form of our witness. The fragrance of his witness, 2 Corinthians two, fourteen and fifteen. We we live on our street, in our town, wherever we are at work, doing what? Diffusing the fragrance of Christ. Diffusing the gospel, the sweet fragrance of the gospel. Let me conclude and illustrate how this works. Because I don't like to talk about things that don't work. There's so much talk today in the world. I want to hear about what works in my life, my new life. And so I held a seminar on prayer from the book Christ Way to Pray at a church. At the end of my seminar, I said, When people invite me to pray for a serious case, because they know, like, I specialize in prayer, excuse me, I'm nothing without Jesus' prayers. My prayers are no avail. So I told that, I say, you know, I I look at my faith, it wasn't strong enough. I look at my prayer life, it wasn't good enough. Yeah? So I decide to have some company to help me out. Well, where is your company? Bring them in. I said, the company is already here. Because Jesus said, when two or three meet in my name, I will be in their midst. So what are you trying to say? I, I said this. I want to admit to you, not because I want to be humble, but because it's the truth. I look at my faith. And my faith looked so fickle. I look at Jesus' faith. It was formidable. So you know what I decided to do? What? curious. I decided to join my fickle faith with Jesus. Formidable faith. That's good. That's good. Because I want to pray the best I can. And the only way I can pray my best is to have Jesus join me. You know, I look at the second thing in my life. It was my prayer. And when I look at my prayer... It looks so measly. Measly means what? Means tiny, small, insignificant. But I look at the prayers of Jesus and they're mighty. So what choice do I have? Except to take my measly prayer and indict it with Jesus' mighty prayers? So excuse me, folks. Jesus and me are coming together to pray for you. And then when you believe that way, It gives you prayer life, buoyancy, it gives you faith, confidence. That's what we need today. So, at the end of the seminar, a lady and her husband came to me and my wife. said, we want you to apply what you just said. Put it to practice. said, wow, you know, hopefully in a seminar you just enjoy talking, 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 but people put you on the spot. So I had no choice but to comply. I said, okay, let's pray for you. And her problem was the issue of blood for 12 years. She said, I'm like the woman during Jesus' time. Please, I must have this kind of praying. Because I've been prayed for many times. I've been suffering all these years. And no doctor can help me. My wife and I humbly knelt together with them. We joined our... Fickle faith to Jesus' formidable faith. We join our means of prayer with Jesus' mighty prayers. And I, to be honest with you, I confess, I don't think I had enough faith. How could it be? We don't see miracles today. We say, Lord, you will be done, that kind of thing. But I've learned to avail ourselves whatever answer God has. He's able to do the impossible. Don't worry about God. Just totally believe and submit yourself to him and he'll do the best thing for anybody. It's his choice, yet, we gave him a chance to work. They went to the house. We went to a hotel. Within an hour, called my wife. I said, no more blood. We said, well, it's just a fluke. See how lack of faith we have? The next day, no blood. The next month, no blood. The next year, no blood. The next five years, no blood. Totally healed. And the reason for wanting Jesus to heal her is because she wants to have a child. I know they have a very healthy child. Please don't look at me. Jesus is powerful. His faith is mighty. His prayers are efficacious. The best advice and appeal I can give to you. Join Jesus. The unique Jesus. Join him in his miracle, his righteousness, in his prayer, in his faith. That's our only hope. and best hope. Shall we stand for prayer? As we bow our heads reverently before God, God is awesome. I want you to think of a prayer request you have. That you think it's impossible. Just like this woman with the issue of blood. But nothing is impossible to God. It has nothing to do with me. It has to do with Jesus. You know, when he came to Nazareth to accomplish great miracles, he could not why? Because their lack of faith blocked what he already planned to do. Let us choose to be believing and not like the people of Nazareth. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads reverently, bow our heads reverently. Now, in the forefront of your mind, present this need, and we're going to pray about it. Dear Lord, we just want to apply what we talked about. And that is we bring to you right now our pressing needs because we are following your invitation. You're offended if we don't follow your invitation when you invite us. Come unto me all your labor, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. So we come to you. And we join our fickle faith with your formidable faith. We join, we indict our measly prayers with your mighty prayers. So we're together. As the Lord said, what happens to us when we pray? Now as we present this deed to you, You promised it will draw close to each one of us. Please draw close to each person here. And with your loving human arm as a son of man, you reach us at ground zero and you encircle us. You encircle our needs, 100%. Nobody can encircle us except Jesus. And then you espouse these prayer requests on the minds and hearts of your people. Espouse them, marry them, make them your own. And now may they, by faith, Ascend upon your divine sovereign arm as the mighty Son of God. Carry this prayer cross upon your divine arm and keep going up and up until you reach the throne of your Father and grasp it for each one of us. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.